So where are we in the story, right? We're traveling through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. We are in the book of Acts, uh, the early New Testament church story. We've been traveling with Paul. Paul is on his third missionary journey, great church planting adventure. Uh, We've traveled with him through the first two. Uh, On this third one, he's in Ephesus. He is writing a letter to the church in Corinth, one of the churches he planted on his second missionary journey. He spent 18 months at this church and discipled them. He receives word from Corinth by someone saying, the church you discipled, they have forgotten themselves, they are getting it all wrong, they don't know how to live for the gospel, but they're carrying the banner of Christ. You need to remedy that. He also received a letter from the church in Corinth asking some questions about how life is supposed to unfold in dailiness like marriage and life and relationships and circumstances, etc., etc. Paul is responding with a letter uh, both to correct what he's heard is wrong as well as to answer the questions from the letter they sent. That's why we're in 1 Corinthians because he's actually writing this letter right now from Ephesus to Corinth and we're traveling through that story. In 1 Corinthians, we have watched Paul already unfold numerous realities essentially saying this, You are the church. Live like the church. Here's what that looks like. In other words, he's informing us with the gospel to say this is how it ought to play out in your daily lives then. And we've traveled through some pretty awesome stuff so far. Most recently, in chapter 6 and 7 of this letter, Paul is dealing with an issue in the church that has unfolded badly. He's dealing with the reality of human sexuality and how it plays out in our daily lives, right? So there is on the one side the lawlessness of sexual immorality. Do whatever you want, whenever you want. That's what you were made for. It's an appetite. Let's do it. And he's dealing with the spiritual uh, view that is incorrect, that sexuality is always unspiritual and therefore should be avoided in all contexts, including in marriage, right? So he's got both of these things, and what is he doing? He's elevating this sexual experience or intimacy to a whole brand new level, saying the gospel actually sets us free from all of the dysfunctions in that and invites us into a space where it's beautiful. He also then elevates marriage to a place it was never thought to be as something not that you need for yourself, but that you get to express and give to somebody else. And so what Paul does is uh, he takes this idea that sexuality is an appetite or it's unspiritual and he goes, it's neither of those things. It is in fact an expression of self-devotion. Or not self-devotion, I'm sorry, that would be the incorrect. Self-donation, right? Self-donation, there you go, the opposite, right? Self-donation, I'm giving myself to someone else vulnerably. But he says marriage is the context in where you've given your whole self in this self-donation and this particular uh, physical intimacy is an expression of that, not the central or highest space in which to exist. So he's done that. He's elevated these realities. Now he does something that is absolutely extraordinary as he unpacks this passage. We're still in the same passage because he does all these things at once because they're all interconnected, right? Take a look with me real quick to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide on your way in, it's page 620. If you brought a smart device or one of your own Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 620 of the Bibles we provide. 
Now he's been, he's been elevating this reality uh, of, of the sexual intimacy of humanity to the uh, 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 gospel space. He's been elevating marriage to a gospel space. And now watch what he does. In verse six, he says this. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So what has Paul just done? This is crazy extraordinary, okay? Not only does he elevate the realities of our sexual intimacy and elevates the realities of marriage, which kind of seems obvious, right? If you're a Christian and you know that, you're like, of course we elevate those to gospel places. He just took singleness that is often experienced as something that is a holding pattern for us until we're finally fulfilled, and he just elevated it to a crazy place. Here's what he said, right? He said, singleness is so good it is so good that I recommend it. What? What? Look, here's what he did not say. He did not say, now some of you out there are single, and since I'm elevating this reality of this intimate human experience and this reality of marriage, don't worry. Carry your burden well. Your time will come. That was not there. That would have kind of made sense. We kind of might have gone, oh yeah. But he goes, uh, by the way, while we're talking about this cool stuff, you want to know what I recommend? You want to know what's so good it's better than that? Stay single. Stay single. And we go, that, that's, that's awesome. But that's what he said. That's what he said. He's not messing around. This is in the Bible. He doesn't stop there. You see, as though he knew that we would then kind of go, maybe we're misinterpreting Maybe he doesn't mean, like, I recommend this. Maybe he's just saying, since I carry the burden of singleness, I recommend you join me in my suffering, right? Maybe that's what he meant, right? That's not what he meant at all. Take a look, he goes on, and now he doesn't just elevate singleness to an extraordinary space in the gospel world, but he actually absolutely redefines its entire re reality and revolutionizes this particular human experience of singleness. Watch this. He says in the very next verse, uh, that is verse eight, to the unmarried and the widows. So that covers the entire base, right? If you are single, you are either unmarried or you were once married and now you're not. There it is. Everybody that's not married. That's what he's trying to say. If you're not married, that makes you single. Okay, here we go. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, watch this, that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. We often focus on that last verse, right? Oh, I mean, if you, if you, if you want to be married, then, then that's God saying you ought to get married. That's actually not what God's doing here. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's just making sure that he doesn't make singleness a legalistic obligation again like we often do in our spirituality. Oh, Paul's saying single's better. I'm going to do single. No, 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 it's not a legalistic reality. I'm telling you that there is an extraordinary freedom, a wonder in being single. I'm recommending that if you're unmarried or a widow, that you consider staying that way because there's great purpose in it. We'll get to that in a second. If you absolutely go, I can't do it, it's not an obligation. 
It's not an obligation. It is a recommendation. But the fact that he's recommending it means he's elevating it. And in the cultural context into which he's writing this, he's not just elevating it. He's revolutionizing it. Why? Well, where is he writing to? He's writing to the church in Corinth, right? He's writing in the cultural time just post-Jesus leaving the planet. And in this cultural context, both for the Jewish world as well as for the Roman world, they did not live in the same cultural context we do in terms of how independence happens or how the self-directed life happens. There was actually in this culture no room for the single human being to make a name for themselves. It was always a family name. That's why in the Roman culture as well as in the Jewish culture, it was always the question, what family do you belong to? What's your name is irrelevant. What's your family name? Who's your dad? Who's your brother? Who's, why? Because your elevation, your status in the community of Rome or in the community of the Jewish people had to do with your family name. That's why it was so important that your whole family did good stuff. Because if one of them did bad stuff and it impacted your family name and you went, I'm the son of such and such, oh, oh, oh gosh. There it is, done, finished, right? But you could not live independently. As a matter of fact, this is kind of crazy. During this particular time in history, the only single people you would meet were either people that were too young to marry or prostitutes. That's it. You didn't run around in a culture with a bunch of single folk. Why? Because to be single was was crazy. It was crazy because you couldn't make a life for yourself. This isn't just about widows that were struggling because they'd lost their husbands. This is about single people. If you were single and you didn't belong to a family or you got older and you didn't marry off quickly, there was this obsession to get you married because if you didn't marry, you couldn't build a family, you couldn't have a legacy, you couldn't have a hope because your entire hope Your entire legacy, your entire value system was built on the idea that you belonged to a family and then you produced a family. As a matter of fact, it was so crazy that Caesar instituted a law that said if a widow, that's somebody who's lost their spouse, right? If a widow does not remarry within two years, they were fined. They were fined. Yeah. So the, actually, after this revelation that Paul brings the gospel uh, to Corinth, it gave the widows of the church a massive advantage over the widows that were secular, that were part of Rome, because if you didn't get married in two years, the pressure was so bad, you start paying fines. Why? Because this is what Caesar was saying. You are no good to our society unless you're married. So if you're going to stay unmarried for more than two years, we're just going to fine you until you stink and get married. Because we're not going to provide for you longer than that. And we're not going to have people running around in our society that have no value. So can you imagine how extraordinary, re- extraordinarily revolutionary it was when Paul says this to the single folk and the widows. Not, hey, I know you're single. I know it's terrible. I know it's a burden. But don't worry, God has a plan. He went like this. You single? That's awesome. Stay that way. Man, pray and ask God if he would allow you to stay single. That'd be super cool. Can you imagine how revolutionary that would have been to this culture? Hold on, on. you're saying there's another option to obsessively trying to get married so I can be valuable, so I can matter, so I can have provision, so that I can have a life, so I can have a hope, a future, a legacy? 
Paul goes, yeah, absolutely, there's another option. In fact, there's a really good other option. In my opinion, a better one. And he writes that. Here's what he's saying. I am sorry that the culture has told you that being single is a burden. I am sorry that the church has told you being single is a holding pattern. I'm sorry, but it's not true. Being single is a gift, a gift from God with great purpose that he's given to you to do great things with. Now, now let me just stop here for a second, okay? If you're in this room and you're single, I know what you're thinking. I know, I'm, I, I'm not a fool. You're going, there's a guy on the stage who's married with eight kids and he's telling me singleness is a gift. <laughs> Doesn't play well. Doesn't play well, right? Like, oh, it's easy for you, Renault. You got eight kids and a wife. You go to bed and there's not a cat next to you. It's a woman, <laughs> right? So I'm just saying it's not really fair for you to be on the stage telling me singleness is a gift. I agree wholeheartedly. That's why I'm happy to tell you I'm not the one telling you that. Paul is. Paul is, right? I didn't write this. Paul did, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And all I'm telling you is what I'm reading, okay? So I'm not the one saying to you, I think singleness is a gift. Take it from me. We read a lot about marriage, uh, yay for singleness. I'm saying, I read this too. Paul seems to think that's a better way to live. This is the Bible. That makes it true, by the way, just in case you're wondering. So I'm not here pretending to know something that I may not know. I'm here to tell you the scriptures say that singleness is not a burden like the society has told us. It is a gift with some extraordinary advantages and you need to get that right so that you do not waste your time in the calling to which you are called, whether temporarily or for a lifetime, both equally valid. And so this is what Paul is doing. So then you may ask the question, rightly so, if you're single here, wonderful, singleness is a gift, the Bible says so, how come it doesn't feel that way? How come it feels like a burden, not a gift? How come I gotta walk around like, a, like the, the two-headed stepchild of the church family where everybody's wondering, what happened to you? Why aren't you married at 21, right? Why doesn't it feel that way? I'll tell you exactly why it doesn't feel that way. Because most of the time, we do not live our lives informed by the gospel, we live our lives informed by the world. We live our lives formed, informed by the culture and where it's snuck in to all of the spaces in which we live even in the church. We live our lives by traditions and not by the freedoms that the gospel allows us. So what does the world tell us? What is this thing that the world says, here's the deal? Why does it make singleness feel like a burden? Well, the world begins with this, right? And, and the church is kind of bought in a little bit. The world starts here, okay? The highest human experience that you were created for was physical intimacy. There it is. That's what everybody waits for, isn't it? I mean, that's why I said a couple weeks ago, uh, the Bible college boys say, Jesus returned right after the honeymoon because God helped me if I end up in heaven and I never experienced that. Because everybody told me that's the thing to experience. See, the, the culture's told us, if you cannot experience the reality of physical intimacy, what you were made for, then you can miss out. Now you're a Christian, so you can't do that till you're married, so hence marriage becomes your next best option, right? And here's the deal. The world is wrong. You were not actually created, nor was I, for that purpose, to have that. 
that was actually a gift given to us that we can give to somebody else if necessary in the right context to lay ourselves down and it ought to be given when we're in that context, right? That's what we dealt with last week. But it was not given to us as the pinnacle of human experience. It's actually unnecessary according to scripture. It's just cool when it's used properly. That's it. So it's a lie, it's a lie. The second thing that the world tells us, just so you know, is this, that marriage is your hope. Marriage is your hope. Why? Why is it your hope? Because it is only in marriage that you will be completed. Oh, it's so beautiful. You complete me. It's only in marriage that you can find your soulmate, because if you don't have a soulmate, you are alone. It is only in marriage that you can establish a legacy because then you can have kids. It's only in marriage that you can really be worthy of the communal experience. Now, I don't know that in the church we fully believe that, but we sure act that way, right? Our kids are born, we start telling them, I'm prepping you for marriage. What if God prepped them for him? We don't tell them that because that would be a horrid burden, right? No. So we, we live in this world where we, where we look around and we buy into the idea that marriage is our hope and our future. It's the highest pinnacle of human experience relationally. And then sexual intimacy is the highest experience of human uh, exp- experience. And, and both of those things are lies. They are not true. The scripture says that's not true. That's not why I made you. And that's not where your hope is. What does the gospel say? What does the gospel say? The gospel is the redemptive revelation of the story of God. So the gospel represents the revelation of God to us, right? So what does God say? What is his message to us? Number one, he says this. You were actually created to experience your greatest fulfillment in me. I was made... Well, I I made you, I was never made. Boy, two theological misses today. (laughs) Bam! I made you so that I could fill you up. That's it. So, if we're honest and we think the gospel's true, which we do, then our fullest human experience where we will be most full is not when we've experienced the physical or emotional realities of some other person. It is when we have journeyed deeply enough into the devotion of Jesus and living on mission for him that we will find ourselves most full, right? Because he is enough for us. We don't actually believe that. When we say it, oh yeah, he's enough until I go off to uh, tomorrow and I don't have a boyfriend or girlfriend and I need one, right? Oh, he's enough unless my bills can't get paid. He's enough unless I lose my job. See, we, we say these things like, eh. but the truth is he is enough. And if we were actually going to pursue him instead of pursuing all the idols that we tend to live by, we would find him to be enough and he would fill us in a way so unimaginable that the things we thought we needed, we wouldn't. But we don't do that, we pursue the things we think we need. And that's what Paul's trying to say here is, the gospel says the pursuit of Christ, the pursuit of devotion uh, full of the Spirit of God will fill you so deeply if you actually pursued that, that everything else would pale and become unnecessary. And if you're not doing that, then everything else will feel super necessary, right? Because you will feel unfulfilled. And second of all, 
the gospel reveals this to us. P.S. Your hope is not in the future legacy of this planet. It dies. Sorry. Whatever legacy you create, maybe a few hundred years, a few thousand years, and it'll all be gone. Your future is now established in a soul rescue and a future redeemed that goes on for eternity. And that eternity is what you live for now because you now know that it's there and it's where your life belongs. You are no longer citizens of this world, but you are citizens of the kingdom of God. You were children of wrath, but now you are children of Christ. And so now you get to live differently. So where is your future hope? It is in the other life that's yet to come that's part of this life because we are now belonging already to that life. In other words, that's not just the hope of the single person. We all have spouses, you have eternity. It's beautiful. We all have spouses, you got Jesus. No, no, it's all of our hope. It's all of our space for hope. And we are all missing that often. But what he's saying to us is the single person feels the weight of singleness as a burden instead of a gift because the world has told them you will never be fulfilled without experiencing human intimacy on a physical level and you will never have a hope in the future unless you're married. And the gospel defies that and says that is not true. What does the gospel say to us? Your hope should not be placed in a fairy tale. I know the fairy tales. I know. They're on every sitcom, every romantic comedy, every Disney movie, right? Love Disney, every Disney movie. I mean, your hope is in the fairy tale that someday there will be a prince or a princess just for you, made for you. There will be a few birds, they will sing, and he or she (laughs) will sing with them. Be awesome. Then you get married and you wait the rest of your life for this other human being to turn into what you thought was gonna be the fairy tale. There are no birds, they don't sing, right? You're like, come on! So the reality is, we live in a fairy tale, and we believe the fairy tale is where our hope exists, and the gospel says, do not put your hope in a fairy tale, put your hope in the promise of the gospel. What is the promise of the gospel? Your soul has been rescued. We're good here, right? Your soul's been rescued. And who fills your soul now? A prince? A princess? A beautiful bird singing over a beautiful wedding? No, no. Jesus is our soulmate and he does complete us. Actually, that's true. That's not just out of Jerry Maguire. That's true. (laughs) He is our soulmate and he completes us, but we don't want him to be our soulmate and complete us. We want that spouse to be or whoever that future spouse is. And he's telling us, listen to me, your hope is not in a fairy tale. It is in the gospel promise that I have rescued your soul. I am enough for you. I will transform you over time to finish the work in you. I will fill you with more than you could have ever imagined. And when you leave this planet of death, I will be your everything forever. That's a gospel promise. And he said, I will finish all of that. That's a pretty awesome promise. We ought to pay attention to that. And then he says to us all and to the, those struggling with the weight of singleness, our value is not in our marital status. It is in our restored purpose and our calling. You are no longer valuable because of your relational status. You are valuable because he rescued your soul, redeemed your future, and restored your created purpose to do what? to be an ambassador for Christ, a minister of reconciliation for people to God. Whatever your status is, that's what you use to do it. 
but your status doesn't give you any more value in doing that work. You can do it in any status equally well, just differently. So he says we gotta buy into the gospel. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, look what he says. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule to all the churches. What is he saying? What is the current assignment God has for you? What's the current calling? Well, I'm currently not married. Good, that's your current assignment. Uh, is it gonna last my whole life? I have no idea. But what Paul's saying is that it shouldn't matter, should it? It shouldn't matter, because if you say it's gonna last my whole life, what you're saying is I will carry the burden of my current calling when God is saying, no, your current calling is extraordinary and I'll tell you in a minute why. We're gonna get there, we're gonna get there, don't worry, it's coming. Live in your current calling. Are you married? Then that's your current calling. Live in it. Don't try to change statuses. Don't be obsessed with trying to get out or in. Look at what you have. Live for the gospel. This is my rule for all the churches. Live for the gospel. Live for your calling. Folks, listen. If the gospel is true, in other words, the message of Christ revealed to us is that our purpose is restored to be image bearers of the creator and live redemptively on the planet as ambassadors for Christ. There it is, that's your whole purpose. The other stuff's all just spaces to do that and if that's true, then singleness gives you a unique advantage on this planet to fulfill that purpose. Listen to that again. If the gospel is true and our entire purpose is devotion to Christ and on mission for the kingdom of God, then singleness gives you a unique advantage in that purpose. It doesn't mean marriage eliminates your ability to do it. It just means singleness gives you a unique advantage. Here's what he says, look. Again, it's not me saying this to make you singles feel better about yourself. This is the Bible saying this to reveal truth to you so you know what's actually going on so that you don't live in lies and, and feel depressed because the, the, the culture's told you a bunch of junk, okay? Here it is, look at this. Look what he says. He says here uh, in chapter seven, uh, in verse 31, the, the last half, for the present form of this world is passing away. That was the closing of a little paragraph that he started this way, just a few verses up in verse uh, 29. Time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. So here's what he's trying to say. He's trying to say this. Guys, do you realize what we're living in? We're living in a vapor, a vapor of a space. The Bible says that too. Your life is like this, like that. Feels long, doesn't it? especially when you're in the space you don't wanna be. But actually that's our life, right there. And he's saying this, time is short. Time is short. And you've been called to fulfill your created purpose during this short time. Don't waste it trying to be something you're not. Don't sit around and go, this is my lot. No, please, God, as soon as you change it, I'll do some stuff. It's like, no, it's a short time. Look at what you have, jump in, get going. The time is short and this planet is passing away. Whatever hope you have in the fairy tale, it's burning already. Throw it out. Look at eternity and live for that. Now look how, what, he, what he says about that. The, the very next verse uh, from 31, verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. Okay, that's because the time is short. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord 
how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. There's truth in that, right? There's truth in that. When you got a wife or you got a husband, God's called you to do all sorts of stuff with them, and you're all sorts of anxious to try to get that stuff done, right? Lots of, lots of struggle right there. Beautiful, God's call, but lots of struggle, right? Look at this. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. That's a reality, folks. It's not, I mean, the Bible's just telling us what is, okay? It's a reality. It's divided, right? I want to do devotions. I do, Okay? And then I start, and three minutes in, seven of my children start fighting each other with big bats and swords, and I gotta intervene. And then I get home, uh, and it's dinner, and it's homework, and it's craziness, and then right about 10, 15, when the last one goes to bed, I sit down, I'm like, I'm gonna spend some time with the Lord, probably watching TV, no, I'm just kidding. I spend some time with the Lord. And then you got, you, you got your spouse, and your spouse is going, we haven't talked all day. You're like, yep, we sure haven't. Are you saying we should talk now? And then you talk that, and then you pray together, and you keep nudging each other to wake up. Lord, I think, did you fall asleep? No, no, I was thinking about the next sentence. There's our devotional space, right? You're saying it's a little divided? It's a little divided? Okay. Look. Look what he says. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. There is the key verse of the entire passage. Paul's heart behind this entire passage is not to make the single person feel better about themselves. I know it's hard, but don't worry. I'll make you feel a little bit better. Say, no, 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 no. You have missed it. There is an extraordinary advantage to the season of singleness, whether it is a lifelong season or whether it's a part of your season, and you are missing it because you are so obsessed with changing status because you believe the things the world has told you. But listen, I'm trying to secure your undivided attention to what? To the Lord. I mean, he's he's given you this gift this time where you get to take what you have and pour it into him. It's not that the married folk get to lay themselves down for another human being and you don't. No, you get to lay yourself down for your soulmate, for the one who has fulfilled you by laying yourself down for a bunch of other people. He's saying, single folk, you ought to be as busy, if not busier than the married folk. You're just busy doing undivided things instead of divided things. He's not saying marriage is worldly. He's saying the reality of the dailiness divides your devotion. And when you're single, you don't have that. That's just a reality. So instead of wasting your time sitting around single, wondering and dreaming about the fairy tale, put that aside. Don't buy the press on that and step into the extraordinary advantage that God has given you. And stop worrying about how long the season will last because that comes out of the same dysfunctional lie that got you in trouble in the first place. In fact, what you ought to be saying, this is what the Bible says, is you ought to be saying, God, oh, that you might keep me single till I die. Oh, that'd be sweet. Now, if I meet someone and they're super cool and you say marry them, I'm totally in too, but man, that you might keep me single. What would life be like 
if we devoted our hearts undivided to the devotion of Jesus and the expansion of the kingdom, doing the work of the gospel without being divided by the realities of dailiness in the family. And Paul argues here by the Spirit of God that this is a good and right calling that you ought to actually desire as equally as you might desire to be married. They shouldn't matter anymore. The gospel has changed that. What is your current status? Wow, that's cool. That's what he's saying. Wow, that's cool. So what does that mean? What does that mean for us here? You guys out there that are single and you're like, you're stressed already. Oh gosh, Lord, am I gonna have to wrestle with not being married? Stop, it's coming out of dysfunction. Here's what, here's what this actually calls you into. It's beautiful, it starts here. It says to you, single person, stop looking at what you don't have that the world's told you matters a great deal and start looking at the tremendous advantage you do have. You have a space in your life, a brief space in your life. Because even if it's your whole life, your life is brief. So it's brief no matter what. You have a brief space in your life where you have the option, I don't have according to scripture, to give your undivided attention to the devotion of the Lord and to the work of the ministry. Wow. Wow. Start looking at that every day. Wake up every morning and go, that I might have another day undivided is awesome, God and I thank you for it, and I'm gonna take it and defy the culture and the enemy, and I'm gonna live this out well. And if that should ever change, I'll figure it out then. But I'm not gonna obsess and have anxiety about whether this is gonna be my life, because this is a good life. In fact, even a better life. Second of all, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about, well, how will I provide, and how, how will I live? I know these are real things, but hey, guess what? We're all anxious about those things. That doesn't change when you get married. Woo, I'm married, I'll, I'll have a spouse and they'll take care of me. Most of them don't. All they do is create a space where you're not in control and you start freaking out about that. You lost your job, what, what? You, do we have enough? It's, it's super anxious there too. So welcome, we're all anxious, good. And he's saying stop being anxious. Why, because God provides what you need. Oh no he don't. Yes, he does. You just think you need stuff you don't. So don't be anxious. Trust God's promise. Oh, I do every day, Bruno. I trust God's promise for a spouse every day. Wrong promise. <laughs> Wrong promise. The gospel didn't say, oh, I created you to be married, so trust me, I'll fulfill you. The gospel said, I created you for me and don't worry, I will fill you. I will begin a work in you that I will complete in you. Your story is mine to write and you're gonna love it when it's done, even if it'll be hard on the way and it's hard no matter your relational status. So jump in and go for it. Trust God's promise. Live for Jesus. If you're single, stop trying to find a spouse. Live your life, make friends with people of the opposite sex and if at some point it turns into marriage, awesome! And if it doesn't, awesome, right? Because he set us free in all those categories now. And live for Jesus. Look at me for a second, single folk. I'm sorry the culture's told you that you're single because you're broken, because something's wrong with you, because you can't seem to nail it down. You can't seem to get it done. Nobody seemed to like you. Those are lies from the pit of hell. They are lies from the pit of hell. And I'm sorry you felt that way. And I'm sorry if we've perpetuated that at any point in time with our hopefulness for you, our good intentions. Oh, someday you'll find your Prince Charming. 
instead of saying, your Prince Charming showed up when you received the gospel and you are gonna know things I cannot know because your devotion is free in a way mine is not. Wow, to have your story. And then they get to say no, to have yours. They're both beautiful. So just know you're okay, you're good. This is actually an intended, beautiful calling from God for this season of your life. And I would say, Paul would say, I hope it lasts until you die. If Paul says it, it's gotta be good. It's gotta be good. We've missed it, folks. We've missed it, right? Church, we are the body of Christ. We have among us married people. We're pretty good at those, right? Then we have single people among us, not so good at those, right? Because we've bought into these lies, have we not? Have we not? And so we communicate them to them subtly. We say things like this, hang in there. I'm sure God has a great story for you. Someone out there is already yours running around and he just hasn't had you two collide. I know your intentions are so good. You're just trying to give them hope in the hopelessness of singleness. Singleness is not hopeless. It's not a mistake. It's not a holding pattern. It's not where they're stuck. It's a beautiful calling and we ought not to pity the calling because when we pity the calling, we are living in a lie and we are perpetuating a lie to them and to ourselves. We forget that the gospel is our safe space and we think our marriage is. Oh, until you have what I have, you can't possibly know how good it is. It's not that good. No, no, I mean, it's good, but it's as good as the calling you have. See, it's not better than your life. It's just different than your life and a different calling to lay myself down differently. And so we need to not perpetuate it by pitting or judging those who are single. What we ought to be doing is supporting them and honoring them. We ought to be honoring those who are single among us and go, wow, what, a, what an awesome season in your life. Wow, you're single? That is super cool. Not, oh, wow, awkward. <laughs> and we ought to start saying, your value in our space is equal to our value. In fact, Paul would say, you get to set the pace a little for us in devotion and mission. So we get to follow your leading because we're a little divided. We are a little distracted and we need you single people to set the pace for us because we got a lot going on that's worldly, right? Daily. And we need you to set the pace for us and you guys are obsessing over your future Prince Charming. We don't have time for that. We need you to set the pace for us. You can't be setting the pace for us if you're waiting for Prince Charming to show up. Set the pace because you have Jesus and you live for him. We ought to honor and support that. We ought to encourage our single folk in the gospel, not in their future hope for marriage, but say, wow, what a calling currently you have in your life. Man, live well in it while you have it, even if that were to be your life story. Because if it were, Paul would say, what a better way to live. What a better way to live. And then, we ought to meet their needs. Because we all have needs, and some of those needs emotionally, and financially, and practically, are met in marriage, right? And we are given the privilege as a biblical community 
to step out and meet those needs for one another, and if they are folks that are single, they have emotional needs, they have financial needs, they have practical needs, and they don't always feel like those are being met because it looks like they're being met in marriages better. They're not. We need to show them that by saying they're met in biblical community, not in marriage. Marriage is only one piece of biblical community. And so we ought to step in and start saying, man, our single folk, you know how important they are to biblical community? Singles, you are so important to us, and if you don't set the pace, we're all behind. We're all behind. So here's the deal. Let me close with this, okay? Don't buy the press of the romantic comedies and the Disney movies. Watch them. They're entertaining. Laugh a bit. And when you walk out, smile and go. That was entertaining. That was not theology. That was entertainment. It wasn't truth. And in fact, if anything, it's going to remind me that thank goodness I don't live under that horrid bondage. But I know Jesus, and he is my soulmate, and he has filled me, and I'm only just getting started with him. Listen to what Paul writes here. The end of this particular section in chapter 7, verse 38. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well. Congratulations, if you're married, you did well, you did well. And he who remains from marriage will do even better. I didn't say it, folks, the Bible did. We skip over it in church a lot because we don't want to believe it, but the reality is that the world has told us a lie, don't buy the press, buy the gospel, press into the gospel. And remind yourself that your current calling, if married, don't try to change status. If single, don't try to change status. Trust God for your story. Live in it well. Discover it as it goes. Make the gospel known. And singles, set the pace. Set the pace. Don't get behind us, married folk. We're too divided and distracted. Get in front of us and invite us into a deeper devoted journey and a greater mission because we need you to inspire us because you've got the space to do it and you ought to be busier than we are because your value, according to Paul, is equal, perhaps even a little awesomer in biblical community because you have singular focus. Please, I beg you, don't waste your singleness being obsessed to find a soulmate and get married. That is not the way to live. Use your singleness as the gift that it is to change the world for the gospel while you have it. And maybe you ought to ask God if you can keep it. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the beautiful wonder of your word setting us all free from the idols and restrictions in which we live and the thoughts and ideas we've bought in from the culture. For those in this room that are married, may you call them as we did last week to invest deeply in those marriages and seek to make those most beautiful and those that are single, may you call them deeply into laying themselves down daily for your extraordinary story, for those around them pouring themselves out and allow them to see clearly the advantage to their calling in this season of their life that they would not waste it away on obsessions with idols that will ultimately do nothing good for them anyway. God, may we fix our eyes on the gospel, on you, Jesus, on your kingdom, on things above, 
And may we remind ourselves daily wherever we are in whatever relational status we find ourselves that you are our soulmate, that you complete us, and that our journey into deeper devotion with you and greater mission for your kingdom is the only thing that will set us free from the things that bind our souls. May our singles set the pace for us, undivided, wholly devoted to you, running hard for your kingdom so that we might follow them inspired by their undivided lives. We love you, Jesus. Amen.